0: So listeners, welcome to the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute Emerging Leaders Network Civics for Life podcast. Today, our guest is Mr. R. Stanton-Jones. Mr. Jones is a partner at Arnold & Porter in Washington, D.C. He focuses his practice on complex questions of constitutional, statutory, and international law. He recently has handled trial and appellate litigation involving the First Amendment, Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, the Alien Tort Statute, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Act. He's one of the attorneys who headed up the successful redistricting litigation before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in 2018 and a similar case in North Carolina in 2019. He's represented parties or served as an advisor in 16 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Mr. Jones, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Can you start by providing our uh, listeners here a brief recap on the census and its impact, its effect on redistricting, and just kind of a a short overview of what the census is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, for as mundane as it sounds, the census is actually one of the federal government's most important uh, responsibilities. It's it's set forth right in the Constitution. Um, every 10 years, the the government conducts a account of every person uh, living in the United States, and the census is really all about money and power. So the census population count on the money side is used to allocate uh, about one and a half trillion dollars in federal funds every year. So if your state or your city or your local region has a higher population count, according to the census, you get more money. If uh, If your area has a lower population count, You get less federal money, and so you want yourself and all of your neighbors to be counted in the census, assuming you want money from the federal government. Um, And in terms of power, the census is is important really in two respects. Um, First, the census population count is used to allocate um, uh, seats in Congress between the states. So there are a total number of seats in Congress. They have to be, be divided up between the 50 states, and the number of uh, seats that your state gets depends on your population count according to the census. So again, yeah. if you want your state to have more seats in Congress, if you want your state to have better, stronger uh, political representation in Washington, D.C, you want uh, your state to have you, you want yourself and everyone else in your state. Uh, to be counted. Uh, and then, so so for instance, this decade, um, there are some states that will gain seats in Congress because in the last 10 years their population has grown um, enough relative to other states that they're entitled to additional representation in Congress. Places like Arizona, uh, North Carolina, Texas um, are expected to, to gain at least one seat uh, or two in Congress. Other states that have uh, lost relative population in the last 10 years, um, Pennsylvania, potentially Rhode Island, a couple of others, uh, will lose a seat in Congress and they will lose that much political power. Um, Beyond the allocation of seats in Congress, every individual state uses the census count um, within its state to draw, state legislative districts. So your state house, your state senate is carved up into districts um, with each district having the same number of people according to the census count. So at an even more local level, if you want your neighborhood, your uh, your city, your county to have greater uh, political power in your state capital in the, in the general assembly or legislature in your state capital, get counted in the census. Mm-hmm.
0: And how do people get counted in the census? I know we've already passed Census Day, their big push, but but what's the the kind of drop dead deadline?
1: So the deadline for being uh, for counting has been extended a couple of times already. It's currently October thirty first. It was originally supposed to be July thirty first. It got extended to August. Now has been extended to October thirty first. Um, this the Census Bureau refers to April 1st as Census Day. Um, And April 1st is an important day for the census, but it's not the deadline to be counted. Uh, April 1st is when the census counts everyone living in your house as of April 1st. And so that's why they call it Census Day. But people have until October 31st to be counted. Um, While that is an outer deadline uh, and you have to make sure you get counted by October 31st, it's really incredibly important, particularly in the current COVID-19 environment, um, to to get yourself counted earlier. The primary way that people can get counted is just by going online. Every uh, household in America will have uh, received a short mailer from the Census Bureau uh, with some information to log in. You go to the website. I did it uh, a few weeks ago. Right after getting my mailer, it took maybe six minutes to fill out the census it's really just a handful of basic questions about who lives in your house um uh, and so the more people who go online to fill out their census forms early the fewer uh uh door knockers the census bureau Mm -hmm. will have to send out into communities to try to track people down and get them counted between now and october
0: Mm -hmm. got it so you mentioned the the coronavirus, which is a perfect segue into what I was going to ask is, is, how is the coronavirus impacting the census? I'm sure there's a lot of different ways. You just mentioned census day uh, with all the college students moving back home and people moving in with friends or whatever they may be doing. Do you see that having a, an impact as well? So yeah, the coronavirus will definitely have
1: an impact on the census. It has already. Um, I, ref- I mentioned the, the delay in the deadline for people to get counted until October 31st. Um, the administration has also indicated that it will ask Congress for um, delays in the, uh, the administration's own deadlines for tallying up the count. Um, there, there's a de- one deadline, which was supposed to be December of this year. For the administration to um, to turn over to the states the uh, congressional allocations, uh, and then a deadline in March for the for the administration to deliver to the states all of the more granular census data that they can use in redistricting. Um, the the government has indicated it will ask for a four month extension of those deadlines and. Um, Although I believe that the administration has been uh, deceitful and dishonest with respect to other aspects of the census, this extension for a four month delay in light of the coronavirus seems reasonable. Um, as I indicated before, a significant part of the government's collection of the census count involves sending people to go knock on doors uh, when those households haven't completed the census, uh, either online or, or mailing in information. And so, um, that obviously can't happen in a in a safe and healthy way right now. Uh, that process will will reasonably need to be extended.
0: Right, right, and so that then, if they get a four month extension, that shortens the window for the states to complete their own legislative redistricting processes too. Right.
1: So it it may shorten the window for states to conduct redistricting. Although I'll say from having worked on a couple of successful gerrymandering cases in the last couple of years, we've actually seen that state legislatures can and and in in my cases have done total redistricting of both their state legislature and all of their congressional seats in about a week and a half. Um, So. Wow. While, while state legislatures often complain that they need more time and and that's actually played a role in redistricting litigation before what we've seen is that when when they're actually um, uh, it, when courts really put a deadline to them they can do redistricting quickly
0: hmm Wow and uh, if we have time I want to circle back to the the cases that you worked on in, in the, the gerrymandering cases but but sticking for now with with the coronavirus, Uh, What about elections? How is the virus uh, expected to affect elections? Uh, We we just had this recent case in Wisconsin, which we might want to get into in more detail. But but the the down ballot races other than the presidential election are all also happening this year. So what are what are the, the broad impacts that you see?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the presidential election is important. But as I think more and more people have come to realize in recent years, those down ballot elections, uh, governors, state legislatures, state Supreme Court seats are, are incredibly important. And yeah, the, the COVID-19 pandemic will have a significant impact on elections nationwide. I, I don't think that there's anyone who's reasonably doubting that right now. Um, even in, in projected best-case scenarios, there are still going to be limitations um, on the fall um, with respect to, to social gatherings and, um, and restrictions in terms of social distancing. Uh, so, you know, in terms of the elections, you've seen certainly an impact on campaigning, right? The, the candidates can't have any rallies. They can't give any speeches in front of big crowds. Um, they can't attend in-person fundraisers, which I gather are important uh, to raising money. But in terms of the actual impact on, on voting and elections, I think the most important thing is that this will just substantially increase the need for widely available uh, and accessible mail voting. Um, right, People won't be able to go to vote to the, uh, at polls in the same way as before either because, um, uh, you know, election boards limit the number of polling places, there may be longer lines if there are fewer poll uh, poll workers, or if there are uh, requirements in terms of, you know, keeping six feet apart from each other. All of this will just make it more important than ever, critically important, really, um, that, that states ensure that mail voting is uh, widely available and actually made accessible to people
0: hmm and and that that seems like a, a common-sense thing to me but but I know there are folks with concerns about mail-in voting um, there's you know people some people say they're concerned about fraud other people are concerned about a partisan impact there was a really interesting study a paper that came out from some researchers at Stanford University just this week saying that mail-in voting Overall, does not have any proven advantage for either party, which I thought was very interesting. So um, I don't don't know if you want to comment on any of that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's really quite striking that uh, just mail-in voting, even in the context of a a deadly pandemic, has become a partisan issue. It really it doesn't. it doesn't cast a fantastic light on the state of our of our politics or elections. This seems like something that should be uncontroversial, regardless of its partisan impact. But when the partisan impact is unknown or or even you know according to to that study, um, not favorable to one political party or the other necessarily, it, it really seems like it should be something. That every single state should be doing to make sure that um, as we are seeking to return to normal uh, in all kinds of different ways that we not
0: uh, lose access to just our basic democracy hmm and in terms of managing those elections who has what levels of government have the authority to postpone elections if they say they need more time or if it's not safe or what have you uh, how, how does that work
1: so it varies depending on the election and the state. Um, there's uh, certainly for the uh, November general election, uh, Congress would have to change that. Um, that. There's a federal statute that signifies and, and declares the general election day in the fall. Primary elections, um, those going on now, some of which are done, others will happen in the next few months, Those will vary by state and states will generally have control over when to conduct their primaries. Um, Within a state, uh, there may be differences in terms of who is the decision maker on whether to delay the election. I think you've seen in in at least one state, a governor made the decision to to delay the election and that was implemented. Uh, By contrast, you mentioned Wisconsin um, I think there was a little bit of a, a game of chicken between the governor and the legislature about who was going to, you know, was one of them or the other going to actually declare uh, a postponement of the primary election in light of the pandemic. Uh, and then there, eventually there was a dispute over it. The legislature uh, refused to act. And so uh, Wisconsin's governor, uh, really on the eve of the election, declared a postponement, but the, the state courts reversed that.
0: Mm hmm. Right. Let, let's dive into that case a little bit more because it's been in the news a lot, and I think it's a really important case. So you already just, just gave sort of an overview. Um, there was a back and forth dispute between the governor and the legislature over whether uh, to postpone the election or expand mail-in voting or, or extend the deadline for mailing your absentee ballot, all these kinds of elements and it eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court the day uh, which ruled the day before the election in a case called Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee, which is a pretty striking name for for the case. So so what happened overall and what are the main takeaways? What do people in other states learn from what happened in Wisconsin?
1: Yeah, so um Wisconsin's election was really timed to run right into uh, the the virus it was in in the midst of the sort of full stay-at-home orders um, when uh, you know lots of places around the country were talking about peaks in the number of cases the number of hospitalizations the number of deaths um, and so what you saw in the run-up to Wisconsin's primary election last week was just a a dramatic increase in the number of people who were requesting um, absentee ballots, who were seeking to vote by mail rather than going to the polls. Both because people didn't feel it was personally safe or healthy for them to go to the polls or for their neighbors, um, also because the state was closing polling places. Um, In in Milwaukee alone, uh, something like 180 polling places was reduced to a total of five places where uh, people there could go vote in person. And so because of this dramatic increase in the number of people in Wisconsin who were requesting um, mailed ballots, um, the the system was frankly overwhelmed. Uh, They were not going to be able to get uh, mailed ballots to everyone who requested them in time for election day. And there were lots of questions and disputes about um, what were the deadlines for people to submit their ballots and what does that even mean. Um, A a lower federal court, a federal trial court in Wisconsin granted the request by Democrats um, to extend the deadline so that um, all that needed to happen was that the ballot needed to be received by April 13th, which was several days after the election. Um, the Republicans appealed that all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which which changed it, and said that the rule was that absentee ballots now must be mailed and postmarked by Election Day, which was Tuesday, April 7th.
0: Uh-huh. And, and what was the impact? I, I mean, the I know a lot of people were expecting it uh, to maybe favor Republicans, the ruling to favor Republicans, but in the end, the the uh, Democratic uh, candidate for the state Supreme Court ended up winning by a significant margin. So, uh, I mean, I just kind of gave away the punchline here. But what was <laughs> the main impact? Yeah,
1: so the Democrat won. The Democrat um, won. The as you say, the most important. Uh, contest that was on the ballot that day. It was it was a seat on Wisconsin's state Supreme Court. It was a hotly contested election, one that was projected to be close. Um, President Trump had weighed in several times, both at rallies and on Twitter, uh, expressing his support for the Republican uh, candidate to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And so, so in the end, the Democrats won. So if the RNC thought that by litigating this case up to SCOTUS, they would be able to, to tip the election in their favor. Um, it obviously didn't work. Um, that said, tens of thousands of people in Wisconsin were disenfranchised and lost their right to vote by virtue of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision. Um, and, and in really arbitrary ways, people who, uh, people who requested absentee ballots At the same time, on the same day, some of them received those ballots before Election Day in time to to fill them out, get them to the post office and get them postmarked on Election Day. Others didn't receive them until the next day or the day after that or the day after that. They lost their right to vote. Um, Other ballots, um, creating creating even more confusion um, because the Supreme Court's decision came so close to the election, the post office uh, just at the last minute turned on uh, a special procedures to, to um, isolate absentee ballots in the mail, to separate them out from all the other letters and packages that people were sending to make sure that they um, get delivered promptly and to make sure that they have postmarks on them. That's something that the post office can do. Um, they can ensure that that absentee ballots in particular are moved more quickly, and that they're all postmarked. But because that was done uh, literally on the eve of the election, other other ballots that were mailed within days before the election, uh, many of them were not postmarked, and so there, there I believe, are still outstanding questions of what to do with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I again, I'll, I guess I would just just ask, what can the average citizen do in in their own state to? make sure that as many people have the right to vote uh, as possible?
1: So there will be um, enormous political movement and energy to try to increase uh, vote by mail between now and November in states across the country. Um, In some places, that will be feasible to accomplish at the level of the state legislature, uh, with support by governors, some states will, will voluntarily amend their laws, um, to reflect that voting by mail needs to be made more widely accessible and available than ever before in light of the pandemic. Um, in other states, it may, uh, it may require litigation. So, you know, for the average citizen, um, people should just follow very closely, um, you know, uh, state Boards of elections will put out information, um, but it, it may take it, it may take a little bit extra in some places to figure out exactly how you're going to vote and to make sure that that it's that you do it uh, right and in time. Uh, but it, it's certainly never been more important. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I'll just make one uh, comment on the the Wisconsin election of the here this, this most important seat that you mentioned was the state supreme court. A lot of states don't elect their judges, um, and actually I, I, I wonder, I'm not 100% sure, but it might be a minority that still do elect their judges, and, and that's one of the things that uh, Justice O'Connor worked on a lot is, is trying to push states to get rid of elections for judges and replace them with what's called merit selection, where uh, judges are are rated based on their effectiveness and then appointed by the governor from Uh, on a panel and things like that, rather than judges having to go out and raise money from people for an election where they might actually be ruling uh, in favor or against that person who just donated to them. So I I don't know if you have an an opinion on on judicial elections in general.
1: So um, there are lots of states that still use judicial elections um, it, it seems like a system that is fraught with uh, potential for for conflicts. That said, um, there are there are a lot of good, honest judges who are elected. So I certainly wouldn't want to to cast aspersions too broadly.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, we're we're just about out of time. Um, if uh, you know, you've done a lot of. Uh, important work on on elections and gerrymandering and redistricting long before the current crisis, and, and yet this has kind of overtaken everything. So I guess if you can, uh, this is really unfair to ask of you, but if you can sum up uh, your work on those cases in Pennsylvania and North Carolina and, and what you were able to accomplish there and why it's important, I, I think that's important for people to hear.
1: Yeah, so um to so- uh, along with amazing colleagues, in the last couple of years, I've I've litigated successfully gerrymandering lawsuits in in Pennsylvania and, and North Carolina, where we struck down um, gerrymandered uh, congressional districts in both states, as well as gerrymandered legislative di- state legislative districts in North Carolina. So that really, for the first time in a decade, um, voters in those states are are able to vote in free and fair elections where the, um, the outcome is, is going to be determined by the voters casting their ballots rather than by some partisan mapmaker sitting behind a, a computer, uh, just like we're doing. Um, and so that makes a big, a big difference. And you know we talked a lot about the census and the census plays into redistricting and, and gerrymandering in, in such an important way because when mapmakers, partisan mapmakers, are engaging in gerrymandering, what they're doing is manipulating the district lines to either include or exclude certain groups of people based on where the census says that they live. And so it's really the the census data that forms the basic building blocks for political power in the United States at both the state and federal level. And so, you know, going back to what I said at the beginning, if you're if you like money and power, you should get counted in the census and you should encourage all of your neighbors to get counted in the census. And the one other thing I'll say about it is in addition to the gerrymandering cases, I also worked this past year on the lawsuit challenging the administration's attempt to add a question about citizenship to the census and um, we were ultimately successful in that case. The U.S. Supreme Court uh, struck down, rejected the addition of a citizenship question to the census. And I I can guarantee everyone, because I filled out the census myself, there is no question on the census about anyone's citizenship. So any concerns that ever existed about the addition of of a citizenship question Um, are are eliminated. Uh, People can safely fill out uh, the census without any concerns about inquiries into citizenship.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for all that background and and for all of your work. and, And we really enjoyed having you here today. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me.